0: Well, good morning, Bethany. It's just great to be here. It's like home here for Louise and I. Your pastor has been such a beloved friend and a steady friend for I don't know how many years. It's got to be 35 or more, something like that, maybe nearly 40 and uh, he was instrumental in my life early on in the Christian life. I was just growing and trying to learn new things, and he'd already been ahead of me on those dynamics, and he poured himself into me. And as you already know, because he is the shepherd among you that he is, that is no surprise that he would do that. He still does it to this day. We have all kinds of chats, and uh, friendship is precious Yesterday was an equally sweet, sweet time to celebrate Beth's homegoing. We prayed for your congregation. We know that's a heartache that runs very, very deep. And uh, we'll continue to do so as it draws us to the throne of God's grace. And we draw strength from the Lord. Always praying for their family uh, who feel the loss most profoundly. So thank you, brother, for having me today. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's look at Luke chapter 8 this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. The famous Rabbi Kushner in 1981 wrote a book, the title of which you're probably familiar with, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He explained that when he wrote that book, he was trying to solve this dilemma in his mind regarding a family tragedy that he experienced. He was studying the book of Job at the time and he concluded that Job had that same dilemma in his own mind when he faced the loss that he faced. The calamity, you know, had struck and Job was, as Kushner says, forced to choose between believing in a good God who is not totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good. Kushner said that Job chooses to believe in God's goodness, the implication being that Job uh, totally accepted the reality that God wasn't powerful enough to stop these difficulties. In his final analysis, this is what he said. God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes he can't bring that about. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. And I suppose just as we address the Word of God on this subject, we know this struggle very well. We face those ideas in our own heart. They come up regularly when we are challenged with difficulty. Those same dilemmas, we could say, bubble up in our minds before we have a moment to filter them. We might entertain questions such as, is God powerful enough to work all temporal and earthly things for my absolute spiritual best? Or we might ask the question, if I believe He's powerful enough, is He of such good character that He's always trustworthy enough to bring everything for my absolute best in how He works it? We might even ask the question, maybe he's powerful enough, we accept that, and maybe he's trustworthy enough, but then we ask the question about his love. Is his love so constant? Is it so unalterable that he's willing to oversee everything in my life so that it is indeed for my absolute spiritual best? And there it is. Is he powerful enough? Is he good enough? Is he loving enough? The strength of our faith, I would submit to you, is directly proportionate to the depth of our convictions about His power and His goodness and His love. Our faith and its strength, the foundation of it, how well it operates in a given difficulty is proportionate to the answer to those questions in your heart and in your convictions. Jerry Bridges wrote this, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. It is, beloved, that simple. Now, when we come to this narrative in Luke 8, it is obviously one that if you've grown up in the church, you know about. But this issue comes to the forefront as the Lord Himself disciples these men that He is with. It is a famous account. Let's read it in verse 22 and following. Very simple narrative. It came about on one of those days that He and His disciples got into a boat. And He said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they were sailing along... He fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm and he said to them, where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, and saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water to obey him? Luke adds this extraordinary event on the heels of discussions that Jesus had been having with them about faith. You remember just Before this, Luke records that some people came and said, I'm looking for uh, Jesus' family members. And Jesus says to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So the issue here was, will you have a kind of faith that manifests itself in a humble submission to the commands of Christ, to the will of Christ? So it is fitting that he... Presents this scenario in the boat across the lake. As this event unfolds, it is like every other learning experience orchestrated for the disciples, and it becomes really interesting for you and I. First of all, there's a providential circumstance that God puts together, and the circumstance begins to unfold some kind of trouble. Then the faith of the disciples is put to the test in each of these scenarios. The weakness of their faith is inevitably exposed. Jesus then is revealed as the only answer to their weak condition. And the disciples then have their theology refined and their faith is strengthened. And in fact, you could pretty much take that template and place it over every single experience we have in our life. It is the same. God leads us toward the troubles of life. Our faith gets tested. We think we're strong on our own, the original sin in the garden. I will move past this barrier on my own. I won't trust the barrier God put there. I know what I need. I know what I want. I I like to be independent and autonomous. God exposes our self-reliance in the test. Our weakness shows up. We're forced to turn to the Lord, as God's people always must, in the end, Lord, you alone have the answer, and therefore, when He gives us the answer and we trust Him, our spiritual convictions are refined and deepened, and our faith grows. This is the template of the Christian life. And so, let's look at the particulars here and watch how Jesus deals with this. It is very straightforward. And if you're keeping some sort of marker outline, He providentially withdraws here at the beginning. So, point one, He is providentially withdrawn for a reason. Verse 22, it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat and he said, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. They launched out and as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Jesus had taught some parables from a boat and then he had gone home with the disciples and he was teaching them the meaning of the parables in private, according to Matthew's gospel. Then they had gathered again and to get some desperately needed rest, uh, he no doubt asked Peter to go get one of his boats and said, let's go to the other side of the lake. And so it was evening, Mark 4 tells us, and so they launched out, or literally they set sail. If you know anything about that lake, if you've been there or you've visited, it's 13 miles long and five miles wide, so going from the northwestern sort of tip on the top end across to the eastern side. It'd be about four or five miles, just enough time for Jesus to take that power nap that he's going to need and and was so desperate for all the time. He is exhausted. And when, when Luke records these kinds of things or any of the gospel writers, it just is a marvel, is it not? He is fully human. He is fully one of us. Sometimes we like to separate out the, the way that Jesus lived his life from how we live our life, because we do believe sometimes in our foolishness that he just, because he was divine, he just did away with all of the typical human frailty and suffering that we go through, and he just sort of lived according to divine power, didn't need rest, didn't feel all the things we feel when we're exhausted, and yet he did. He depended upon the Holy Spirit and believed in His Father's will just like we do. He's the prototype of how we submit to Christ's Spirit now as we are indwelled by Him. And so we, we should not imagine a separation between the two. He is one of us, fully, and He felt it. Frail, tired, weary from a day of literally serving and counseling and traveling and preaching and meeting people and healing and praying for their needs. It was constant, everyday all day. The kind of thing that when a preacher does that in our contemporary society, we snowflakes kind of say, hey, don't work too hard. You're working too hard. You're getting too weary. And, uh, and yet here is the Lord doing it every day, all day, because that's what the demand was. That's what the need was. I love that. The Lord of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, who created the boat, the materials that made the boat, the lake, all of that. He is mentally, and he's emotionally, and he's physically spent. And so the text just says he went to sleep. <laughs> and while they're in the boat, and he's sleeping, verse 23 says, a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. So he's providentially withdrawn, and now they are violently overtaken. They're violently overtaken. Fierce gale wind. They began to be swamped, the text says, and to be in danger. If you study the topography of that region, this is not a surprise. They have these hillsides and some of those higher mountains out in the surrounding area, and that cold wind sweeps down across that lake and hits some of that warm water that was warmed in the sun, and suddenly the winds can gust very violently. It's very similar to some of what we experience down in Florida, we have violent weather like that, the cold air from the north coming off the Atlantic, and some of those warm air pockets coming from the large lake that's in the middle of the state. When they hit, we get these violent fronts. Maybe many of you have lived in places in the country where that happens. This is exactly what is taking place here. And Luke literally describes it as a hurricane-force wind. That would be the original terminology here. Most translations say storm. The NIV translation, if you read that, says a squall. That's probably getting pretty accurate. A squall would be this violent upturn of the wind and the high waves. Matthew indicates that the lake shook violently is how he described it. Using the normal word that you would use for earthquakes, it was violent and In that violence, the text says, they began to be swamped, or literally they filled up entirely. So the boat is completely getting swamped. They're about to go down. And the massive waves are smashing over this boat at such high high levels that experienced fishermen are out of sorts. Experienced fishermen. Fishermen, sailors, had been out on the water many times in the industry. And they are frightened. It's too fast, it's too big, it's too violent. And they're concerned enough that, that they've got to figure out what to do in a panic. Jesus isn't around on the deck where they can see him. So Mark 4 indicates he was in the stern asleep, Mark says, on a cushion. <laughs> that's a great detail that Mark adds he's asleep on a cushion it's a soft day for him how can this be well he's exhausted he's exhausted you say really it's that violent the boat is shaking it's being swamped isn't he getting hit with all the water well I don't know how the boat was constructed I don't know if there was an awning I don't know if he was under something but he is wiped out and asleep quite comfy (laughs) It's just such a great contrast. Seaworthy sailors, storm-savvy fishermen <laughs> with decades of experience. Jesus has crashed out on a pillow in the back. He just... When I read it, I thought, isn't that precious? <laughs> How can this be? Listen, Jesus, though fully human like us, is demonstrating what it is to enjoy Deep needed rest after a day of serving God. Doesn't mean that God doesn't sometimes disturb you when you sleep. It doesn't mean that burdens don't heavily come upon you to such that you wake up. But a day of serving God with a clear conscience does result in exhaustion. And a service well rendered is sleep well enjoyed. And so the spiritual battles of the day are over. His trust in the Father was always at full strength. He never worried. He never questioned God's providence. He never demanded constant earthly comfort and safety. And I know when we, when we think about that, again, we just try to separate ourselves from the Lord and say, well, He was never tempted like we are. Well, the text in Hebrews says He very much was. But more importantly, the temptations never stopped for Jesus because He never yielded to them. So the strength and fury of temptations kept coming all through his earthly ministry and he kept having to submit himself to the Spirit of God. If you ever want to know how deep the battle went and how furiously it raged, just read what happened in the garden as he was in his human will asking for some other way than to take on a foreign guilt he'd never felt. And in that garden experience, there was... This very difficult temptation as Satan and Hell's fury came against him to tell him to avoid it. That he's too great. Same temptations that came in the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 4. If you're the Son of God, take take your take what you own, take what is your right. Same thing in the garden. Don't imagine Jesus never felt those things merely because you see him not worrying or never questioning the providence of God. He is constantly bringing his heart under the will of his Father. Yieldedness, humility, this is his submissive heart that makes him comfortable in the middle of this violent tempest. And he didn't nurture a demand for something different. Jesus never used his divine prerogatives to make life comfortable for him. In His common grace and even in the special grace of being cared for by the Lord, we get all kinds of comforts in this life. If we didn't, it wouldn't change who He is to us, but we have had them. Jesus never used any of His divine power to secure earthly comforts and safety. When He was exhausted, He slept. When He got up, He went back to ministry. This is what His life consisted of. Well, what does that teach us? It teaches us that when you, when you avoid or when you stay away from nurturing some demand for things you believe you're entitled to, you are, you're of greater service. You don't worry as much. You don't fret as much. You trust God's providence as it unfolds. And this is, of course, the great goal of the Christian life is to never nurture something that would then attack our strengthened faith when the time comes to really need it at full strength. Jesus simply lived in the course of everyday life, entrusting himself to the divine plan. He was exhausted, but he believed. I love that. He's human, but he believed. And so he slept. So, he's providentially withdrawn, and then they are violently overtaken. Verse 24 then tells us that there's this spiritual defeat spiritually defeated, verse 24, they came to him and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And here is the focus of Luke's narrative. The focus isn't the wind and the waves being calmed and settled by the Lord. That is coming in the narrative and that is profound enough, hard to even fathom. But here is the focus. Here's where the disciples reach the end of themselves. In fact, Luke's wording raises in our minds the question of God's power. We are perishing. You remember that question? Is God powerful enough to keep me from these things? They are now deciding in their mind that God is not as powerful And in Matthew's account, the the question of God's goodness also comes in, because in Matthew's account, they came to him, awoke him, and said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So now it's the question of his goodness. Why aren't you doing this? If If you are a good God, you would be saving us already. You wouldn't be putting us in this frightening place. You wouldn't make it so there doesn't seem to be any hope. We would be given, out of your goodness, a means to make this go away, to solve our problem. You would give us all that we need in tangible things, in things we can touch and feel to solve our problem. So again, in their statement, Master, Master, save us. We are perishing. They are already raising the question of God's power and His goodness. And then... Mark adds the most sad detail of all in Mark 4.38 that woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There's the love question. Are you powerful enough? We're perishing here. Are you good enough? Save us. Why would you put us through this? And do you not care? This is a direct attack by faithlessness on the character of God. Beloved, this is the problem with us every single time a difficulty comes. Now, you, it's difficult enough what we were talking about all yesterday with the loss of a family member and a loved one, but what about our culture? What about what has been going down? We've had had professing believers at each other's throats over this kind of thing. When you get right down to why they're arguing over these things, some are capitulating from the truth into error because they are fearing man and they're wanting to maintain some comforts in this life and they've already questioned the goodness and power and love of God. I mean, after all, this is America. Isn't this God's favorite country? Isn't this the place where he gives us the comfort and the love and the power and the goodness of in all things? Isn't Trump our new Messiah? Come on. Right? We, this is where some professing believers have gone. And they are coming out with attitudes that are dividing God's people and they're adopting positions that are error, clear error, not taught anywhere in Scripture because they're trying to secure some care of themselves because they have doubted that God will care for them, that God has his hand on all of it, that we have no right to some uh, trouble-free, trial-free life here, and yet doesn't change God's goodness and his power and his love for his people. Look, if he promised that nothing can separate us, then... <laughs> then that's all the statement we need. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Before those three boys were thrown in the furnace, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, we know our God will rescue us, but even if he doesn't, even if we're burned up, we will not bow down to you. Why? Because we know our God. He is good and he's powerful and he's loving. If he wants to deliver us, you're nothing. Same thing in the garden when Peter grabs a sword and he just starts swinging. Jesus says, put the sword away. Don't you know I can call 72,000 angels right now and it would be done? This is the plan. This is the purpose. This is what the Father wants. This is best. He doesn't make mistakes. Always good, always perfect and wise, always loving and always powerful enough to pull it off. This is already in the disciples' single statement, a questioning of all three. You say, well, pastors, shouldn't they be afraid of natural disasters? We are, or two o'clock in the morning, someone pounds on your door threatening your family. Doesn't that make your adrenaline go up? Yeah, that's natural fear built into humanity, a survival instinct. That is a part of our makeup, sure. It's natural to our humanity to be overcome with fear and adrenaline when faced with life-threatening dynamics and circumstances. But something far more threatening occurs when our beliefs and convictions about God begin to give way to wrong thoughts about Him. That is the beginning of disaster. In either your response to it, but more importantly, your view of God long-term, your ability to be a gospel influence long-term. The only way for the power of the gospel to live inside of us is that we demonstrate the power of the gospel. If you don't believe that God is that power and that his ways are perfect, you're giving way already to wrong thoughts about him and your gospel influence now gets diminished. Whenever those fears rise within us because life takes a, turn that we didn't anticipate our faith at that point is, is as it were called to the front lines and we're to ground ourselves in the truth we know about our God truth anchors the heart soul and mind and submissive faith grabs hold of it takes it in as our conviction as they said as Paul said to the Thessalonians you received the word you welcomed it and then received it you made it your own You humbled yourself under its perspective, submitted by faith to its purposes, and you aligned yourself with the purposes of God. That's why it anchored your heart and soul and mind. And so what's happening here is God is setting up providentially to expose that the disciples are are not yet willing fully to believe it despite the raging providences all around them. That is so much like us. God needs to grow their faith, and he needs to grow our faith. They needed refining in their theology proper to believe that God is good and loving and that he is powerful enough. He had to put them into an experience, again, to bring them to the end of their own ingenuity and their own skill and their own depth. And so their fear of the natural dangers around them gave way to questions about God. If it had been different, they might have woken him up and said, Lord, um, I know we're taken care of, but the storm is on and we want to take care of you. You know, maybe some care about him. But no, they're saying, don't you care? Why don't you save us? Exercise some of that stuff you tap into every once in a while. Get us out of this. Get us out of this. Also am noting here how fast it happened. Sure, the, we don't know the time frame of the storm, but it, it was a gale force and it came upon them. So the circumstances hit pretty fast, and that's the way it is in a test. God, God puts us in a test to see what our, our first reaction is going to be. Is it going to be a turning to our heavenly Father and saying, "We're going to trust the Lord? He's good. Open the scriptures. I need to be reminded that he's good and that he's powerful and that he loves his people. The entire scene is just familiar territory. And it's also noteworthy that even when they're questioning the care and love of God, they are completely out of options. So... (laughs) God Himself set up the scenario so that it would play out exactly as He wanted it to. They're out of options, they go to the stern they have no choice but to turn to Jesus. Did you know that in every one of these circumstances where our faith has to grow, God narrows the path back to Christ and only to Christ. And you can choose all these other things you want to choose, or a friend, or a circumstance, or change this, or get some more money, or make sure that you've solved your own problem, or work it out, comfort yourself, stay up all night and worry. And you know what? God's going to continue to hammer that thing out and chisel that thing down until you're on a path to Jesus in the back of the boat, that is where he's taking you, back to Christ and only to Christ. So all those other things are literally a waste of time. They are a waste of our time. We're reminded that Jesus ought to be our first resort, never our last resort. But even if he is the last resort, he ought to be the ultimate one. He's providentially withdrawn, they're violently overtaken, they're spiritually defeated, and finally, they're divinely reoriented. Verse 24, and and being aroused, (laughs) this kills me, they had to wake him up, the storm didn't wake him up, and being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. Uh, What? What? Wait, what? All right, this, this is impossible to imagine in the mind's eye. We get massive storms. You know, we're in Hurricaneville. And the fact that Jesus could take something that violent over that big of a body of water and just say, stop, and it becomes calm. I sometimes imagine the people in Tiberias at the time, you know, on that coast. What? It just stopped just like that. I mean you just can't get this into your mind huge white caps and massive movement of water and wind and he rebuked it and the surging waves stopped and it became calm we don't know what Jesus said to the weather other than maybe just a couple of comments mark 4:39 says that he told it to be quiet quiet completely calm would be the literal translation and they, the wind and the surging waves, stopped and it became calm. Verse 39 of Mark 4 says, And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. This is absolutely stunning. Power. The wind and the waves I love Jeremiah 14, 22. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No. It's you, O Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. It's not in the end of the bad weather. For you are the one who does all this. What a great statement on your theology proper. Lord, whatever you just brought into my life, you are the one who does all this. We do not like to accept that you grew up Arminian, you certainly don't like to accept that. God is sovereign over bad things? Yes. God is the one who kills. He is the one who makes alive. He is the sovereign Lord of all of it. Whatever his purposes, they make sense to him. They're perfect in him. They don't lack a moment's eternal wisdom. Even though in our fight nightness, we don't know how to explain those things. We don't know how it is that evil exists, will run its course for God's ultimate glory, and yet He is transcendently sovereign and ordains the whole thing from start to finish. We don't know how to make sense of that. That is not God's characterological problem. That is our theology proper problem. He has revealed it to be so. And whenever we see it, it ought to humble us And that humility ought to come over in our theology proper, applied rightly in a trial at the front end. You are the one, O Lord, who do all these things. You do them. You bring them about. You write the script. And it is flawless. I, I, I may not like what just happened. In my humanness I may react with grief and sorrow because, Lord, you made me human and these things are terrifying and tragic. Our dear friend, the Kelsos in Phoenix, just ran over his little five-year-old and it's over. His five-year-old's in heaven. That's just inexplicable tragedy. Inexplicable. And yet, what does he do? He applies his theology proper And he says, I know my God does all of these things. And that is all that matters. My God is all that matters. Listen to Job 37. Just a couple of excerpts. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven, sends it to the ends of the earth. He says to the snow, fall on the earth and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. (laughs) Whenever you're driving across our state and there's these deluges, and I mean deluges, I know California gets rain two days in February, and after that, (laughs) there's nothing. But in Florida, it's every afternoon, and it's like a foot of water, and then it drains off in 30 minutes. It's just shocking. But when it's coming down and I'm going, going across the state or something, and I see it over there, oh, Lord, you just... Turned on a fossil. You just opened that up. You wanted to open that up. And it's because of what Job says. The breath of God produces ice. The broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture, scatters His lightning through them. At His direction, they swirl over the face of the whole earth to do whatever He commands them. I love that. He's commanding the wind and waves that day. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water His earth and show His love. He covers the sky with clouds, supplies the earth with rain, makes grass grow on the hills, spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. And he hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them and he stirs up breezes and the waters flow, Psalm 147 says. I love that. They are being divinely reoriented by the very power of God. Is he loving enough? Well, of course, he's going to take care of you. Is he powerful enough? He just demonstrated that the universe obeys his command. And is it his purpose to meet your need when the time comes? Of course. Of course. He's good. He's good to his people, even in the midst of tragedy as they were divinely reoriented then, they need something. It's not enough to just calm the wind and the waves. They need to be justly confronted. And this is the Lord's kindness to us. When you're in the midst of a test of faith and you're, not, and you're becoming aware of your self-reliance and just how weak you've been and you're channeled to the Lord and back to Christ... Don't imagine that at that point there isn't supposed to be some deep conviction about how weak you were. There is to be some deep conviction. Don't avoid it because this whole lesson comes to full galvanization in that rebuke in your heart by the Holy Spirit through a friend, through Scripture, just the conviction of the Spirit through the circumstance. After being divinely reoriented, they need to be justly confronted. And so verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And he actually, that's, a, that's an abridged version of what he said. Matthew records that He said, why are you afraid? He's not talking about the natural fear of wind and waves that could drown you. He's talking about fear for your existence, for your care, for the love of God for you. You know how it is. When we go through a trial, it's not... We're not trying to defend that we wept. Of course we weep when a tragedy happens. Of course we fear when something unforeseen comes our way. That's not the problem. The thing we tend to defend is our faithlessness, our lack of turning to Christ first, our weakness in trying to solve our problem and comfort ourselves. And so Jesus is saying that to them. Why are you afraid like you're afraid? Why are you saying what you're saying, that I don't love you, that I'm not good, that I'm not powerful enough? Why are you not turning to the God who has called you and is discipling you? Why are you experiencing that kind of fear? And he said, you men of little faith. Little faith. So he'd hushed the storm to stillness, and Mark says that he asks them, how is it you have no faith? That is a fair rebuke, beloved. That is fair. They had seen the power of God over and over again. That was surely in their memory banks. Their theology of his goodness had already been well established enough to believe it and drive them in conviction. The love of Christ for them had already produced some measure of this idea that, wow, our God will take care of us. Jesus walked with them, took care of them, poured himself into them. Perhaps they'd enjoyed the blessings of God's previous care and Love without entrusting themselves to it in faith. Sometimes it's just, we just enjoy the goodness of God, and we get all this grace from God. We get it, and we take it in, and we take it in, and then when God allows something in our life, we think he's unjust. (laughs) And that's where they were, perhaps. We take all that care and love, and we translate it into entitlement. They were justly confronted, beloved. They needed to be confronted. We need to be confronted so that our faith is built up. And they were theologically edified. There was this providential withdrawing, this violent overtaking, this spiritual defeatedness, divinely reorienting their mind and their heart with this powerful display. They're justly confronted on the crux of the issue. And then they are theologically edified. We don't have any more than this, but verse 25, they were fearful and amazed. Sometimes you want to write in your margin, duh, right there. And they said to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who then is this? And of course, you know, that's how it was recorded. That's how they said it, but... I I like to believe that it was an abridged version because hopefully one of them or two of them or maybe together they said, we have been amiss. We have made a mistake in our hearts. This is our Lord. This is God our Father. And maybe it would have been like Peter that one time when he saw the miracle of Jesus bringing the fish onto the boat and he just threw himself on the deck And he just said, depart from me. I am a sinful man. I didn't believe you. I didn't believe you loved like you say you love or that you're good like you say you're good. Or or that you will have the power to cover and take care of my life like you say. I didn't believe it. Psalm forty-two, eleven. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise Him, my Savior and my God. He's the Savior. He's our God. Don't be downcast. This is the psalmist talking to his soul. I can imagine maybe on the boat that day they were talking to one another and then talking to their souls. Why didn't I believe? Why did I come to Him and wake Him up and say, "Don't you care about us?" They needed to be rebuked. What do you mean, I don't care about you? I've redeemed you. I've saved your soul in eternity. What are you fearing the physical death of life for? You shouldn't fear that. That's a minor nano moment. It's nothing. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, Jesus said. One author put it this way, always faith is initiated by an act of will on our part. We set ourselves to believe in the overruling goodness, providence, and sovereignty of God. And we refuse to turn aside no matter what may come, no matter how we feel. That's right. John Newton, at one point when he was about a few months before his wife's death, he was walking up. And down the room, he says, and he was offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress. He said this, a thought suddenly struck me with unusual force to this effect. The promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I am willing to be helped. It occurred to me that we're often led from an undue regard of our feelings to indulge that unprofitable grief which both our duty and our peace require us to resist to the utmost of our power. He says, I instantly said aloud, Lord, I'm helpless indeed in myself, but I hope I am willing without reserve that you should help me, end quote. That's what the disciples needed. Lord, I, I know you're good. I know you're powerful. I know you're loving. Am I willing to believe that no matter what may come? He's Lord of the storm. And we, we are carried through these same tests each time. We need to get closer and closer to turning to Christ first. And he has to bring us through these things to bring us to that kind of refinement. So... Let's bow together. Lord, such a short narrative, and yet there is the realization of spiritual defeat in it that we resonate with so clearly. And we need to be reoriented by the way you work through circumstances. You reorient and recalibrate our hearts and our minds. Thank you for that. Thank you for loving us despite our tendency to run to earthly things and self-solutions. Even our own assessment of circumstances can so often be riddled with earthly carnal assessments and reasonings when we ought to consult our God immediately. And so you are just when you confront us and say, where's your faith? You have brought us through so much. You have cared for us with such proven goodness and such demonstrable love and such overwhelming displays of power in the resurrection life that lives within us and in your strengthening of us and our faith when we need it, in the moment we need it. That when we face tests, there should be no doubting your love and power and goodness but oh Lord we do sometimes we're not willing to be helped your way only willing to be helped as we feel comfortable with we want to repent of that we don't want to be helped with just how we feel we want to come to you and know the help that you bring despite what's going on around us Despite what you're taking us through, long-term illnesses, lost loved ones, some unforeseen tragedy, a culture that is dying around us and becoming hostile to the comfortable way of life we had, and even a nation on the precipice of, of greater and greater destruction and a slide into devastation. Lord, we are your people. We are not to come to you and and with faithless cries demand that you demonstrate that you love us differently or that your goodness can't sustain us in the years ahead. No, we, we need to come to you and, Lord, help us to ask you every time and to run to you every time for your wisdom and your word and your assessment and your strength and even that you would break our hearts so that we're willing to be helped. Your kind of help, divine help. And then we will be the light you want us to be. So Thank you for the clarity of your word, encouragement of it. Thank you for this church and how it has been a light in a difficult season, even right here locally. We pray that you'd make it, and its servants here, a greater and greater and brighter light in a dying community. We ask it, Lord, for your glory as you help us and strengthen us. Amen.